This is the Ambition for Aging podcast, bonus episode seven. Is a truly accessible evaluation process possible? I think the kind of research that we do is supposed to feel a bit more informal and friendly, and then as soon as we put forms into it, it introduces that element of professionalism and mistrust for some people, I think. So that it doesn't help relationship building. Kirsty, and welcome to this special bonus episode 7 of the Ambition for Aging podcast. Is a truly accessible evaluation process possible? As you heard from the small teaser before the opening title today, we'll be talking to our guests about how meeting the needs of people in local communities can create a barrier to collecting data for research programmes such as ours. This episode is a little different to the rest of the series. Like all the other episodes, we'll be discussing what we've learnt whilst working on Ambition for Aging. But in this episode, we're going to look at something a little more practical, the process of evaluation and how to juggle collecting the data you need to run a programme like this successfully, whilst avoiding alienating those who may need the support we provide the most. Like all research programmes, we have to collect data from the people who take part in our activities and opportunities. We use this data ourselves in a number of ways. As we are a research programme, we want to find out the answer to our research questions around what kind of interventions work best for which communities, As a test and learn programme, we want to evaluate how we are doing and make changes along the way if we are not achieving our aims. And as a programme that involves communities in designing the places they live, we want to be able to identify who may be missing from the data to ensure we run an inclusive programme, as we can then put extra work into working alongside these communities the data shows we are missing. Our programme is part of the National Lottery community-funded Aging Better programme. The information we gather is not only analysed here in Greater Manchester, but also on a national level alongside data from the other partnerships to discover the answer to a whole host of questions about delivering interventions for older people. Across all 14 partnerships, we asked those involved in the programme to complete questionnaires when they first start taking part, six months into their involvement, and then again after a year. We use this information to answer a range of questions from what makes people feel their neighbourhood is age-friendly and whether they feel a sense of belonging to their neighbourhood, to how involvement in the programme has impacted on their social connections and what they feel about their ability to influence decisions affecting their local area. The data we collect also lets us compare the experiences of people with different life experiences by collecting demographic data such as ethnicity, sexuality, relationship status and education levels, as well as things like digital connectedness and whether they are a carer. If we don't ask the questions, we cannot find out if differences in identity or experience impact people's perceptions and experiences of the world around them, and of the interventions of our programme in particular. So we know how important collecting this information is. However, it's not always easy to get. In this episode, I talked to our guest about these difficulties. And ultimately, if we are wanting to target the most marginalised people in our communities and chart the impact of their involvement, how do we do so when their first introduction to the programme is a barrier? Further, if we remove this barrier, say, by completing a form with them the second or third time we meet them, once we've developed a relationship, are we truly able to track progress from the beginning of their journey? My first guest is Sarah Wilkinson. Sarah supported the Ambition for Aging Equalities Board in their activities, one of which was carrying out evaluations of our delivery. One of the key ways the Equalities Board did this was to use the data we collected to identify gaps in representation and offer support to our frontline staff in targeting and working with those who are missing from the data. I spoke to Sarah about the problems with a form-led evaluation approach, alternative ways of collecting information, and the need for buy-in from those taking part. 
evaluation we carry out on ambition for ageing is quite an intensive evaluation, particularly forms-wise. We have many questions, asking personal questions, some around levels of education, whether people feel like they belong part of their communities, how often they see people. And that's not even when we start looking at demographic information we ask people as well. What kind of barriers do you feel that type of evaluation brings to people? There's a, a lot of different issues, really. There's kind of technical, if you like, barriers in terms of people's ability to complete the forms and their understanding of the questions and the fact that the, um, the information is... We say it's confidential and it's kept confidentially, but if we ask a lot of information and we expect people to fill that in and we're reaching people who are more socially isolated, who have lower levels of education or maybe have impairments that mean that they find it difficult to fill in forms, then then sometimes they're going to need someone to support them with that. So um, that can be one issue, is that we, we kind of construct the forms on the basis that they can be completed by um, somebody by themselves, whereas in practice quite often people need support completing them. And then there are barriers created by specific questions within the forms. One of them is education that you mentioned. So there's a number of issues within the education question, not just that um, people with lower levels of education um, may not feel comfortable in expressing that on a form, but also uh, if people weren't educated in the UK, if they come to the UK more recently, that the um, levels of education just don't match with their experience. And I guess sometimes that means that if that's quite near the beginning of a questionnaire, it maybe puts you off with the rest of it because you yeah. think this isn't from, for the, from a person like me. It, These yes. questions aren't designed for me. Why am I continuing to complete this? Yes, and I think also if people don't understand a form uh, or understand a question, then they might just be understandably more tempted just to tick, prefer not to say, for everything, um, because they've come across something that is uh, complicated and throws you early on in in completing a form. Um, And then the other obvious area is sexuality always comes up and uh, gender identity always come up as things that people find difficult to ask as well as difficult to answer. So that's another big area, and I, th- I, th- I think there's a, a danger, really, with the number of barriers that are involved in, in the evaluation sort of accumulate. It affects how people think about equalities. Equalities is seen as being about tick-box exercise, and people are resistant to ticking boxes for understandable reasons. So I suppose one of my concerns as a equalities research coordinator is about whether it, it almost sort of does equalities a bit of a disservice, really, about using a monitoring, paper monitoring form that's quite a crude tool in some ways. How do you think we could better collect that information in order to reach those most social isolated people who we are aware are potentially have many barriers to completing the forms, to collect the information to be able to demonstrate that we are reaching those people and to be able to find out from them their experiences. I would say that we have to think really carefully about what information we're collecting when and uh, what we're going to do with that information and whether it's necessary always to collect all the information. I mean, as an equalities person, that's a bit of a strange standpoint in some ways, but I think that there might be ways of doing it where instead of getting people to, for example tick a box, a long list of questions with lots of boxes to tick. We ask people maybe to describe themselves a bit more in their own words. 
So, as you said, you know, if you go straight in with the difficult ones, then that's not perhaps such a good approach. Maybe leave some of the ones that are a bit more personal or a bit harder to answer towards the end so that people, first of all, feel that they're more confident because they've completed more of the form and, secondly, they feel that they could perhaps skip those at the end and without missing out doing the whole form. It's always a struggle in equalities work that you, you know that people who have a particular identity face particular discrimination, but you also know that everybody's unique individuals. Part of that is around intersectionality, so how having more than one factor combines to not just be an addition of the two factors, but to create a new form of um, discrimination or isolation. Part of it is that, so everyone's got a unique combination of, of different factors that they've had in their lives and they have as they're ageing, but also just people's own levels of resilience in coping with change and things can come from pl- things that we're, we're not monitoring at all in the current kind of monitoring system. So we know that even if somebody has seemingly on paper, literally, the same set of factors or risk factors that actually in the world they might be managing very differently with ageing. It is, you know, monitoring is important and we, you know, one of the messages that we say from the Equalities Board is we need good quality and quantity of monitoring but I think we need to be learning from Ambition for Ageing really about how to get a bit sort of cleverer with that, a bit smarter with the way that we use it because I think the quantity of what we do is off-putting for people And I think then what it can do is it can make people take the equality side less seriously because they just think it's all about the forms. That's what people see as the, you know, they go, those equal opportunities monitoring forms kind of thing where they, they don't see any changes as a result of filling in all these forms. I think for some people it might feel a bit like it's going to a black hole and they're not quite sure what happens with it. I think a lot of the research and a lot of the findings that have come out from the programme so far have been around inequalities that has come from that demographic data. You know, I've spoken to people who don't understand why demographic data is important, why do I need to give you this information, and actually how important it is for a project such as ours to be able to make sure that we're able to be fully representative and we're able to reach those who are more traditionally marginalised based on on that demographic information. Yes, I think it is important for that, but I do. I think also there are other ways of looking at how uh, and and evaluating and assessing how well we're reaching the most marginalised um, people. And I think one of the things that we know is that sometimes it takes a lot more work to reach, obviously, the most marginalised people. And so that is, at the same time, is not reflected necessarily in the demographic information in terms of the levels of engagement you've had with people. So it might be that it looks like in a particular area that only a small number, six people have been engaged to who are, you know, meet a particular target group that people are looking at. Um, but it might be that a huge amount of work has been done to engage those six people. So the value of that work may not be reflected by the numbers in the data. I think there's something there as well around, and I think we might touch on this a little bit, the fear of or the mistrust of authority. And if you're just going along to an event, then it's seen as one thing. Whereas as soon as you bring out a paper form and start asking people questions around demographics or, or even the rest of the form around how age-friendly they feel their neighbourhood is, about social contact, about all of that stuff, that they may be stepping back there and feeling actually this is more of an authority thing than I'm used to or I feel comfortable with. 
In some ways, it depends who's doing that. So, so if, as you say, it's a trusted organisation that people know, I think that authority thing may, may be not such an issue because most people know that these days for small organisations to get funding or support, there's a certain amount of paperwork involved in that. But I think in the very informal, some of the much less formal things that are being supported by Ambition for Ageing, I think there will be that that mistrust, particularly where people are doing self-organised events or activities and they've just had a fairly, sort of, not light touch support, but they've, they've maybe not had a huge amount of involvement with the, um, the LDL itself, but suddenly there's an expectation that they are going to be filling in forms. So, yeah, I, th- I think it, it, it is all context-dependent, really. I think maybe if you're trying to reach those people who've not got contact with services, those mm. who are the most socially isolated, you're then bringing them into this environment <clears throat> where maybe they don't have that knowledge that this yeah. service needs you to complete this and you're yeah. having to start those conversations to begin with, mm. then there's maybe something there as well around the, their ability to be able to complete there that is. information, whether that's emotional or technical. So. There is, and I think for certain, certain groups of people... There's almost the opposite, that people are expected to fill out information so often. We've been just been funding some small research projects and we've, uh, there's a couple that are going to work with people who may or may not be um, refugees and asylum seekers and talking with colleagues, they're saying that they're just expected to fill out forms all the time, you know, and that being researched all the time as well because everyone's interested in researching them. And I think, you know, even in health services and things now there is more of that kind of demographic monitoring going on so I don't know whether that familiarisation with it actually helps people or whether it hinders people, it could work either way couldn't it it could be that because people when they go to the doctors have to now fill in something that includes um, a certain level of kind of fairly personal information that then they sort of understand that this is something that that, um, organisations are doing now or it could be the opposite that people feel more and more resentful of being asked those questions yeah I, I think I think it's a really difficult one I do think it's really important that we have that good quality demographic information uh, I'm talking about from an equalities perspective but um, yeah generally um, information that um, relates to social isolation in older people but I'd l- I'd sort of, I think there may be more creative ways that we haven't found yet of getting that information and seeing it as a positive way of people claiming their identity of who they are. Um, and we've had a few examples where people have said because they've had a discussion about a particular question, people have sort of suddenly realised that that's a part of their identity and that's, you know, that can be something that can fill people with, you would hope, pride rather than shame. I think that it's just all that background work needs to happen so that people know that it's not judgmental, know that we're interested in people's experiences, their life experiences, that, yeah, that it can be a positive thing to to have experienced things in your life that maybe other people haven't experienced and the richness that can bring, particularly when you're in a group of people such as the Equalities Board. That's what, how we try and work with the Equalities Board, really, is that we see that people's life experiences and their identities gives people knowledge and strengths that other people don't have that they can then share with other people. So to value those things, that takes time. You can't do that by presenting someone with a piece of paper and asking them to tick boxes.
think Sarah's point about how it can take a lot of work to engage with a small number of marginalised people is an important one. When we talk about inequalities, we talk about those with less access or experience and involvement in these kind of programmes and those with less assets in the community to build from. By the nature of being traditionally marginalised or at risk of marginalisation, there needs to be more work carried out to reach and earn trust. Thinking about in practice, compare this. The work it takes to go to an already existing community group of vocal and confident people with experience in taking part in similar activities in the past. Then compare it to the work that needs to be put in first to identify communities of people who have been underrepresented in these types of programmes, to earn their trust, supporting them to learn the processes of such programmes, all the time taken to adapt our processes to their needs, building up self-belief, offering the opportunity to build skills in advocacy, building the confidence to make decisions on behalf of and for their community. The kind of data collection techniques that focus solely on form filling cannot demonstrate the amount of work that goes into engaging with different people and as a result it doesn't show in the data. This point about tick box monitoring giving tick box value and the need to support such monitoring with more inclusive and creative ways of collecting data is one of the things I discussed with our second guests. Dr Sophie Yarker featured earlier in this podcast back in episode 4 where we had a chat about social infrastructure. Sophie is a research associate at the University of Manchester and as a result has a lot of experience in carrying out research like this. We were joined in our conversation this time by Jess Thorley, our evaluation officer based over at Greater Manchester Combined Authority, whose job it was to analyse the data we collected to both publish what we're learning from the work we're doing and she also used the data to evaluate the programme as we progressed. We spoke about the importance of participants understanding why the questions we ask are relevant, the importance of collecting different types of data and the importance of trusting frontline staff in filling in the blanks despite missing data. One of the things I spoke to Sarah about was the barriers that lengthy evaluation forms can bring about. How are the barriers represented in the data we collect? So I think it's a combination of the fact that for a start we already know that over 13,000 people have been involved in this programme, but only 3,000 of those are showing up in our data. So we already know for a start who's being represented in terms of numbers. But on top of that, we know that that's not a representative sample of the kinds of people that are involved because of the evaluation design, because people you know, choose to be part of the programme, it's, it's all um, optional whether people choose to get involved. So no one's randomly allocated to who we get data from and who we don't. But we do know as well, though, from anecdotal evidence, from talking to people who are working on the front line of the programme, that there are considerable barriers for particular groups. We also know as well that even within the people who are filling in the questionnaires, there are certain questions that people are deliberately leaving blank. So it may have come up in the other ones, for example, that it's no surprise that the sexuality question has a lot of missing data. So around a quarter of the people that we even managed to get to fill the forms in are still not choosing to answer that question. But I think perhaps surprisingly as well, the other question that is um, so frequently unanswered is the question around education, which has got very similar levels of missing data. Again, a quarter of people are choosing not to answer that question. So we we know that there is particular groups that are very unlikely to be represented in in that kind of data that kind of comes across with that particular style of questions as well as that particular style of of method of data collection. I think there's also an issue of some people not recognising or understanding why the questions are being asked. So they don't see see the point of saying what their education level is because they don't see the relevance. Um, Certainly the question around sexual orientation as well people also don't see the relevance of being asked that. So some of the resistance there because they don't understand why they're being asked. They don't see it's relevant to the, the activity or the programme that they've just been visiting. 
Yeah, I think absolutely. I think that the relevant side of it, I think in, inherently a lot of the time the questions that we ask in a questionnaire then put a little bit of a, well, this is the information that we value. Mm. And the questions that some people might think, well, I don't think that my education level and this actually have any, any bearing here. And they might be areas where people feel less confident or more defensive about for various reasons. They might think, actually, there's other information that I think is more valuable to collect in this area. And it feels as though you're making a judgment or an assessment about me based on these characteristics that maybe I don't identify with in some way, either because I don't want to tell you or because they might identify as the default anyway and think that it's not important. I think there's a lot of reasons behind it. And I think, as Sophie says, a lot of it is explaining to people why it's used, because I think the other area, as well as the relevance, is also at the moment we're living in a kind of a world of GDPR, of a general data misuse worries. There's a lot of, I think, concerns around um, data protection and what things are being used for. Um, and so a lot of people are more suspicious now more than ever of, well, why do you need this particular type of information and what are you going to use it for? Which I think then also has a bearing on what people people choose. We know as well from some, some sort of uh, feedback that people have felt that they are happy to give the information, but as soon as they have to sign something and put it in writing and give the consent, then suddenly it feels a lot more official. And it's, well, now my name's attached to it, and that's what I'm not comfortable with. And there's a lot of those kind of myths and confusions and, and concerns around what are you going to be doing with my data. Obviously, this is what it says on the sheet, but where's it really going? And that kind of those, those worries and concerns um, that I think are just a kind of a sign of the times in some ways. Yeah. I think the kind of research that we do is very much about relationships and communities and informal spaces and it's outside of you know the kind of market is outside of the, the state so to speak so it's supposed to feel a bit more informal and friendly and then as soon as we put forms into it it introduces that element of professionalism and mistrust for some people I think so that it doesn't help relationship building sometimes with and, and, you know, you know there's obviously ethics that you have to follow in research particularly from the university's point of view but I think there's other ways of maybe doing it that don't create those barriers and don't create those kind of suspicions for, for people. When we're talking about... So we've got the one side of things where people may be able to fill out a form and don't trust it or don't want to be able to, and then you have the other side of things where people may struggle to, whether that's levels of literacy or whether that's um, the language they speak and it not being in the right language or being in a written language, whereas they speak a verbal language um, instead... What kind of things can we do in evaluation to collect that data maybe in a different way? So I think particularly, as I said for this programme, with a lot of it being around informal activity and relationships, I think the qualitative data is particularly valuable to capture those, those nuances, to capture what's, being, what's emerging from the programme and the types of kind of informal relationships and things that are being set up that I don't think is very easy to, to capture in a questionnaire and doesn't reflect it very well. Um, so, for example, some of the work that we've been doing more recently is we've got things like the case studies that are coming through in terms of the local delivery leads being able to kind of pick up on the things that are going on the ground in their own time as things emerge and kind of track the stories and different processes that are developing. Um, and for that as well, we, re- we really try and get them more recently to think about as well is the story that you're trying to capture here is it interesting because it's unusual or is it interesting because it's happening a lot and sort of being able to capture both um, and being able to kind of identify that as well 
Um, but I think on top of that, we were also doing some work around around focus groups, trying to make sure that um, the participants' voices themselves are coming through, and more of the um, particularly because the program is obviously about co-production. So having a kind of co-productive approach to developing the program, but then a very prescriptive approach to the evaluation is a little bit jarring in some ways so I think for us this year we've tried to go back a little bit more to the roots in terms of getting those older people's voices heard directly um, and Sophie can talk about some of the work that she's going to be doing this year as well. Yeah I think I would always advocate the qualitative approach certainly whether that's in groups such as focus groups or whether it's individual in like in-depth interviews it depends the depth that you need and the you know, the kind of level of personal reflections that you need. But I think certainly you can get all the same information that you want from an evaluation form in a conversational approach. And typically when I've done research with older people before, when their age has been a key factor in what I'm researching, I would never ask them how old they are. During the course of the conversation, it usually comes out, people usually would say, oh, I'm in my, in my 50s or I was born in whatever, and you can take it from there. So it, it requires a little bit more digging and it takes longer but it's a bit more of a natural and organic way as opposed to directly asking someone when they're born and they kind of volunteer the information themselves. So qualitative approaches, I think, are always helpful to kind of break down those barriers. The stats that you quoted at the beginning around the amount of people who have actually been involved and then the amount we're talking to, how useful is data like that if it's potentially excluding those that maybe can't complete forms or can't get involved in the evaluation that way, particularly for a programme that is trying to aim at those more marginalised people? I think with any form of data collection, every form of data collection only ever gives you a partial picture of what's going on. And I think it's recognising what that partial picture is and not assuming that you're seeing everything and recognising the limitations and then trying to come up with other ways to offset that. So a lot of the things that we'll try and do this program is advocate a mixed methods approach um, but also I think it's it's making sure you're working really closely with those frontline staff that really understand what's going on on the front line you know so it's from them that we know that certain groups aren't filling things in because they're the ones that are taking forms out and they can see who's being left out and trusting those staff as well that if you're incorporating them into the process um, so a lot of them do their own evaluation activities a lot of them collect their own case studies it's trusting them and, and also giving them the skills to be able to go, well, you know where there's a gap and you know that then they're the areas you need to plug, whether that's in terms of service activity or whether that's in terms of evaluation. And I think that with this particular programme, with a very tailored place-based approach, it allows those kind of those areas to develop their own solutions, but also be able to identify what their own particular issues are which then from an evaluation point of view also means that you're using that kind of insight and intelligence to work out, okay, these people aren't being represented, is there another way that we can get to them or another way we can capture their experiences? That final point from Jess is something I think we can really reflect on as this episode comes to an end. We know that collection of data is hugely important in programmes like ours and we need to push for collecting as much as we can and encouraging participants to provide this information. However, it will never give us the complete picture. To better measure our impact, we need to think beyond ticking boxes into supporting frontline workers to fill in gaps in our knowledge. As Sarah suggested, we need to provide other opportunities for people to provide us with information beyond traditional form filling. We certainly don't have the answers to whether a truly accessible evaluation process is possible, but we can recognise some of the steps that we can take to meet that goal. 
Huge thanks to Sarah, Sophie and Jess for featuring in this final bonus episode of the Ambition for Aging podcast. Thanks also to all our other guests who featured in our previous episodes. Paul McGarry, Kate Jopling, Vic Sterling, Stephen Raybold, Corinna Hyman, Christina Victor, Richard Dowsett, Yasmin Holger, Sharon Summers, Julie Bentley, Suzanne Martiki, James Nasru, Ian Dyer, Tony Openshaw, Philip Harper Deacon, Michael Tiao, Azetra Nisu, and Atia Chowdhury. Huge thanks also to Lucy North for editing a number of these episodes, and Vicky Lee and John Hannon for giving feedback on the series. We hope you've enjoyed this series, and if you've missed any episodes, then please do go back and check them out everywhere good podcasts are available. Ambition for Aging is a Greater Manchester-wide cross-sector partnership aimed at creating more age-friendly places and empowering people to live fulfilling lives as they age. Ambition for Aging is part of Aging Better, a programme set up by the National Lottery Community Fund, the largest funder of community activity in the UK. Aging Better aims to develop creative ways for older people to be actively involved in their local communities, helping to combat social isolation and loneliness. Ambition for Aging is led by Greater Manchester Centre for Voluntary Organisation, the voluntary, community and social enterprise sector support and development organisation covering the Greater Manchester City region. The theme tune for this podcast is Air by Ilya Trivanov and any indents this season are taken from his track Tide. Both are used under a Creative Commons licence from his album Fugue. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more information about Ambition for Aging and the work we do, visit ambitionforaging.org.uk.